need a bigger boat. Snakes. Why did it have to be snakes? Life, uh, finds a way. Welcome to a very special episode of Spielberg Chronologically. Uh, this is the podcast where myself, Jeff, and my co-host, Eric. Eric. Yes, so Hello. that's your name. Eric. We'll work through this. I feel like I said it very aggressively. <laughs> Eric. Eric. We are watching all of Spielberg's films in chronological order and recording a podcast and putting that out there every other Wednesday. But you might notice that an episode came out last week, and it's... One week later, it's a bonus. It's a bonus episode. It's a very Can special you even episode. Say it's the, the one where the kids try drugs. Do you remember that commercial? It's a bonus. Knock knock. Who's there? A bonus. Can you even say the word? No. Okay. Well, that's a. We're not going down that road. Uh, so we're watching Poltergeist, or did anyway. Um, and Eric, please once again uh, explain to us why we watched a movie directed by Toby Hooper on a Spielberg podcast. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so and this was this was my doing. This was my suggestion uh, that we do this, and and part of the reason why is just because for the majority of my youth, I thought that this movie was directed by Steven Spielberg. The man's name is all over the movie: producer, executive producer, writer, so on and so forth. Um, but it it obviously it was directed by Toby Hooper, at least officially. On the books, on paper, directed by Would Toby you watch Hooper. The film, it says directed by Toby Hooper. Right at the beginning, boom, a Toby Hooper film. But, but there have been conflicting reports uh, uh, since the film came out about Spielberg's participation in the direction of this movie. Um, there, there is no question that he was on set every day. Um, everybody agrees that he was there, and and. Uh, depending on who you ask from the cast, Spielberg either ghost directed the movie or he directed large chunks of the movie. Um, so, and Toby, Toby Hooper was definitely there, <laughs> but, uh, Collecting a played a, a, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, playing a secondary role. Um, so the rumor is basically that Spielberg was under contract to direct E.T. And as part of that contract, he was not permitted to work as a director on any other features while he was working on E.T. So he basically hired in Toby Hooper as a ghost director to be there while he directed this film at the same time as he was directing E.T. Um, and according to folks like the the woman who plays the psychic, she came out very strongly and said that for her six days that she was on the set, Steven Spielberg was the only one acting as director uh, on this film. The, there were other people who were in the movie. Uh, the the real estate guy, mm-hmm. for example, um, our, our our hero's boss, uh, said no. Toby Hooper directed him the entire time. So. It's one of those Hollywood legends, a Hollywood myth, if you will, uh, and it will never be confirmed one way or the other. Both guys stuck to their guns in the press. Uh, Toby Hooper and Steven Spielberg both agreed that they had uh, what Spielberg called a special collaborative working yeah. relationship on this film that was perhaps misunderstood by the press. Uh, you know, and how you want to interpret that special collaborative relationship is entirely up to you. But to me, watching this movie, it really feels like a Steven Spielberg There movie, are so many moments know? that are like, yep, like just the last shot of him dumping the TV on out of the hotel room and it's zooming out. And I'm like, that just feels like Steven. This feels like Jaws, like that kind of hand and touch to the, the subject matter this is basically Jaws with ghosts, I think, when I finished watching it. Very, yeah, a, a, a lot. I mean, they're watching this movie, you know, like as, as, we, as we've watched some of the other films, I've said, oh, this kind of like you can see the faint traces of poltergeist in this, you know, um, was the 
what was the first TV movie? Beyond Evil? Not Evil? Uh, good or Evil? Something Evil. Something Evil. Something Evil felt a little pre-poltergeisty. Um, the Barry segments in uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind feel a little pre-poltergeist, you know, when the toys kind of come alive and start marching around. And, uh, it, it, you know, I, I said at the time, this feels like you're starting to see the DNA of what's to come in Poltergeist. You know, knowing full well that Poltergeist was not an official Steven Spielberg film, yeah. um, you know, it it ain't, but it is. Yeah, I, and I'm I concerned. think it definitely fits in uh, to what we're doing. Um, okay, so uh, tell me your history with Poltergeist. Yeah, so, um, you know, honestly, I don't remember seeing this film for the first time. It was one of those things, uh, like some of the other films we've discussed, where it was on Showtime a lot in the neighborhood when I was a kid, or maybe HBO. And I saw bits and pieces of it. And I think the first time I actually sat down to watch it was probably um, late 80s. Yeah. Like high school era for me, you know, rented it from the blockbuster or the coconuts actually is where I rented movies at the coconuts. Movie gallery. Uh, Of course, blockbuster. What was the other one? There was another one, but I can't remember what it is. Coconuts was like a big open. It, it sold a lot of cassettes and and vinyl, and then it had a very and it rented large, videos. Uh, okay, like movie movie rental why area not as well. Anymore. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, coconuts. Yeah, it's so viable in this day and age. But anyhow, yeah. So I think I probably watched it then, like all the way through for the first time after seeing bits and pieces of it, and it quickly became a favorite. Um, you know, and then I bought the videotape and then I bought the DVD and now I have the Blu-ray. You know, it's one of those like seminal films that I go back to, uh, not to the extent to which I've, I've seen things like Jaws. But, you know, I, I've seen this movie a fair amount where I, I'm pretty familiar with the the major beats of it. Uh, how about you? Is this another one that this is the first time that you saw watched it all the way through? Yeah, pretty much that I've seen it all the way through. I, I'm familiar with a handful of scenes, but none of them strong enough. Like my memories of uh, Jaws, having seen it, you know, not ever seeing it all the way through until we did this. But I had very firm memories of Jaws, and this there were some things that like oh, which the the clown doll right really rings a bell. Uh, the tree coming through the window and that's really about all I can recall. And then the, but, and then the house kind of shriveling in on itself. But I remember that more from the tree house of horror from the Simpsons. It's funny how your point of reference on all this stuff is, uh, it's it's always comedy comedy. versions. Yeah. That's funny. Like parody. Yeah. And so that I remember. So, um, first thoughts, uh, how you, you came in loving the movie and, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, I, I do love the movie. I watched it with my wife last night. Um, she also is, is pretty fond of the movie. Um, so she was like, yeah, I'm down for some Carol Ann. And we, we'd sat there and, and watched it and had a pretty good time with it. Um, you know, again, this is another one that is probably the first time I've watched it in at least 10 years, maybe longer. And so, you know, during during that time, special effects have come a long way. And so... Oh, yeah, we'll get into while, that. <laughs> while watching it, I was curious uh, about your experience, because for me, I can just like I can just let it wash right over me. You know, like it doesn't bother me a bit how some yeah. of the special effects. But for somebody coming in for the first time, there are some particular moments uh, like the first time when the little ghost hand reaches out of the TV. Very Disney-esque animation for that you know it's almost like a lonesome ghost mickey donald and goofy animation that they use you know for that hand effect um and there are there are some other moments in the movie that i feel like maybe don't hold up as well special effects wise the big plaster tree probably being you know one of the the primary ones so i'm wondering no the tree is okay i didn't even notice a problem with okay, it i wonder i'm wondering what what so, what you saw that okay. pulled you out of the movie. Cause I know there was something, I Just, know there was something that pulled you out of the movie. Okay. So the one that comes to mind first, I mean, yeah, the hand coming out, it, I don't know that it pulled me out of the. Yeah, I guess it would, but it, it broke the tension of the suspense that the scene was going for. Yeah. 
There's also when uh, one of my favorite parts where he's the one of the they bring in these paranormal specialists. And he's like, yeah, we filmed this can for 10 hours and it, it slowly moved from one side of the room to the next. It was amazing. It took 10 hours to view it all. And Craig T. Nelson, who's playing the dad, Steve, is like, oh, OK. And he looks at him like, wow, these are the experts, opens the bedroom door. And of course, stuff's flying everywhere. That looked like crap. Uh, outside of the beds that were spinning, which you could tell they were actual effects making that happen, but all the visual effects of the stuff laughing, is it kind of had a silliness to it. And I, I remember this movie having the same sort of uh, cloud around it as like an exorcist, where exorcist is going to get you possessed if you watch it. It's so scary, you'll crap your pants. And this felt way more playful than I expected. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, um, I, I never thought of it in those like super scary terms. Like, there, there's a short list of films that have actually scared me. And it's like Exorcist, Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, that might be it. Um, you know, outside of like jump scares and stuff. And, and sus- be, right. having like suspense work for you is not the same as like actually being scared outright. You know, those are the two films that kind of yeah. like gave me nightmares. And it just. Um, I think that, I think part of it was we'll get into the curse of Poltergeist. I think yeah. in this uh, recording at some point, but the part that I think jumps out the most to me that's like ooh, kind of belly laugh is the steak. Um, there's one of the paranormal guys just goes in the kitchen, and it not his house grabs a raw steak, which apparently wasn't sealed. just sitting in the fridge. It's just, just a piece of meat in the fridge, not wrapped up, and then he gets it out, and you can tell. It is a fake stage steak. It looks so unrealistic. And then he puts, and this is the thing, that's a steak, right? Of the things that you would think, okay, we can make this look real, a steak would be one of them to me. You could go to the store and get a steak, and it would look real on camera. But they decided to uh, fabricate a steak that looks horrible, and then they put it on the table and it starts crawling across the table. And then like, then it kind of picks up a little bit when the, like it kind of turns in on itself and more meat uh, chunks everything. come but out. Then the guy goes, yeah. And then he goes to the bathroom and he starts tearing his face off and it, it looks bad, but it's the charming kind of bad. I like yeah. like Terminator one, um, you know, where I'm okay with that, but it does look bad and it does stand out as being the worst effect. You know, And I think the best effects are, the scariest things are the, the the static on the TV. She's sitting there talking to it. The um, the little things that change, you know, like the kitchen. She uh, sets the chairs and the camera pans and comes back and the chairs are upside down. And, you know, and those are so much better than all the really wacky effects. Yeah. I was really watching and I never I never noticed before as far as the static goes just how hard they went on the static like you know you remember tvs when they had static i'm sure and there would be like Mm -hmm. a light flickering in the room when the static was on the tv if you had all the lights off and and you had the tv on a channel that was either not working or static or whatever there would be like a very light flicker in the room almost unnoticeable in this movie when there is static on that tv it is just a full-on strobe like like watching carol ann come off the bed and walk towards the tv like she's like kind of like doing that frame skipping like the girl in the ring you know (laughs) like yeah like they really went hard on the static and i had never picked up like what a stroby effect it was before but this time i was watching it not on a TV, but on my projector. And so that strobe was like filling our whole room, you know, bang, 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 bang. And my wife looked at me and she was like, man, I wonder how many people this movie gave seizures to, because like it goes on and (laughs) on that flicker. Um, So yeah, I do agree that some of those moments, uh, like the, the less spectacular moments work a little better. Um, That face thing melted my brain when I was a kid. You know, I, I saw that scene when I was a re- like younger kid, probably 11 my, or 12. The thing is, is you could tell immediately when they go from the guy to the prosthetic. Yeah. And it's it's glaringly well, obvious. It, it's interesting because it's worse than Terminator 1, which is the one I think of when you think of guy in the mirror tearing out a prosthetic face. I think of Terminator 1. Right. 
Now I probably think it is because it's way more over the top. Yeah, here. and I wonder if like this is the first time I've watched this movie on Blu-ray or, or maybe even in high def. And I wonder if if before the effect worked for me more because I was seeing it on an old school like 480i television, you know, where you didn't have the clarity of image, you know, and you couldn't tell so much that it was just a wax dude head. Um, because this, mm-hmm. like, as soon as it popped up, I was like, oh, jeez, oh, God, <laughs> that, looks, that looks pretty bad. And we just saw the wax it heads in uh, in Raiders, which I felt worked like a lot better than this, you know? Um, yeah. So, yeah, that's that's a pretty rough moment, special effects wise. But there were other moments where they used practical effects that I thought were great, like all the skeletons and stuff I thought worked very well. Um, you know, like the things... Oh yeah, like when they're yes, totally, and and this is what I talked about on a, my other podcast. We were talking about Little Shop of Horrors, just how good the plant in Little Shop of Horrors still looks today, and how amazing that is, and how fast all this other technology dates. Um, and I think that's true here, big yeah, time. for sure. <laughs> but there's something quaint about it, and I kind of like. There's a balance like there's times where it looks cheesy and you like it. And I think maybe it's just the year it came out and it reminds me of being a kid. Uh, you know, like I can look at that and be like, ooh, that looks bad, but it kind of feels good. But if I watch the original Spider-Man with Tobey Maguire and I'm like, ooh, that was bad. <laughs> and it just doesn't work for me yeah. anymore. Um, like I, I, yeah. I as as somebody who grew up in the 80s there's a certain charm to this movie just because it is such a time capsule of the 80s and, and I mean that in terms of like the kids room like the stuff that is in that kids room he's got his Empire Strikes Back sheets he's got his posters on the wall he's got his Star Wars figure at one point Carol Ann rolls over and she's got a Luke Skywalker action figure hanging out of her mouth like she's <laughs> like chewing on the feet of Luke Skywalker um, they got an alien poster on the wall which really cracked mm-hmm. me like who's letting these kids watch alien come on now uh but yeah so like that that like kind of portal into the past thing uh i like i know a lot of that is just spielberg acknowledging his buddies you know take takeover right. of the american psyche but it felt a little bit masturbatory yeah but, but yeah. S- at least it weren't his movies like it wasn't raiders as a kid that grew <laughs> up in the 80s i knew kids like that you yeah. know like like i knew a kid that had every single masters of the universe action figure that was his claim and there were a lot of those uh and and i knew yeah. people that collected all the star wars stuff the kid that had the millennium falcon was like the king of the neighborhood because nobody else could afford it you know um so yeah kind of seeing all that stuff was a lot of fun but like setting the effects aside did the movie work for you like just storyline wise i mean let's let's back up to what i said at the beginning uh this is jaws with ghosts and so with that in mind knowing how much i enjoy jaws the is absolutely i dug the movie i loved their most of the ending um there was one part we'll get to about the ending that's just like come on but I, okay, this is about the, the Freeling family and Diane Freeling to me, and I don't know, I'm a dude, I have blind spots, but to me, she's such a great lead, so strong and takes like Steve Freeling played by Craig T. Nelson is a loser compared to the, his wife. She takes over this movie and delivers an incredible performance she to me is the hero and i loved just seeing pictures of her in in the dining room kind of work playing and figuring out how the dining room is working with the weird paranormal stuff love it i just loved her in the whole movie yeah i think i think your observation about her being the hero of the movie are definitely on point like like she is for sure the the driving force in the family, you know, like, like he is not the, I don't want to, I don't, I, I don't know quite how to put he it. He doesn't even show up for the finale. He doesn't right? have a lot but of agency, like is, you know, like he, he leaves, he plays yeah. the back, you know, like, like when the uh, scientists come to the house, she's primarily the one that's dealing with them. When the psychic comes to the house, think, he's making jokes while she's like doing what's necessary. To I take think care he the kids. thinks everyone else is full of shit, yeah. which is crazy 
because at the same time, he's seeing all the paranormal stuff with his own eyes. And yet there's part of him, at least that comes off to me, like he thinks this is all just bullshit. But I'm like, yeah, dude, like he takes a backseat completely when the the psychic, the team of psychics come in. Like you said, Diane's the one asking questions, getting in there. What do we need to do? And, and Craig T. Nelson is just trying not to fall asleep. Right. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, It's not like he's a bad dude it just he's not super proactive and like making fun of the psychic struck me as very like shitty like dude you've got a hulk toy riding a horse floating through the air upstairs and you're gonna make fun of the psychic like like oh the psychic is bullshit like no 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 like you're you're well beyond all riding a horse doubt like you're not allowed to doubt any (laughs) like it's all on the table now like god the devil like all it's all on the table you can't just sit here and like point at one supernatural thing and say oh no i'm not buying that for a second like whatever dude like yeah yeah but like you said the hulk on the horse was like one of the moments where i was like okay come on like it loses all of its scariness because then at that point at the very least the poltergeist has a sense of humor yeah well he's like who's making it ride the horse they they don't reanimate and become sentient that's that's (laughs) like something what i'm gonna get into in the questions because i feel like there are definite multiple entities at play in this house mm-hmm. and i feel like different ones are responsible for different things like i think you got the dead people who are buried under the house and then i think mm-hmm. you got what she refers to as the beast in the house and right. i think which is the last thing we see the last yeah creature. i think the dead people like are sliding some... people across the floor and animating the hulk and you know turning the lights on and, and off. i think they're the ones that are with Carol Ann. Yeah. When she's on the other side. Yeah. Because she's not really threatened, freaking out that much. Like, it's not like she's running from the beast the entire right. time. Um, and I think, like you said, with the moving of the chairs and everything, even though Carol Ann, no, Carol Ann isn't gone at that point. Uh, Diane is almost playing with the supernatural elements. She's like, isn't this cool? Like, watch. And like, just almost like maybe there's a weird science to it. She hasn't bought into a ghost thing yet. And, you know, she sits Carol Ann down, puts the helmet on, she slides across the floor. Love that. I love that whole scene. Oh, sequence. yeah. She's she's really um, into it at first. Like, she goes, you know, because she's yeah. kind of like stony, happy, fun mom, you know? And and, and so she's really kind of like hippying out about it. Like, maybe there's some science about this that we don't understand yet. And, you know, like she acknowledges to Carol Ann that it's the TV people, you know, and that neither of right. them see the TV people. But she's really like excited by it and not, and not at all scared like the first few supernatural occurrences in the house are fun you know like they're having a good time with it until suddenly it's not fun anymore and the kid is gone you know and then then right. things take a turn yeah and um so they we also have two other siblings we have uh diane freeling who's the oldest daughter who barely is in the film and Largely plays no part, but she has one of my favorite lines in the movie. Um, Oliver Robbins, who plays Robbie Freeling, is the younger brother who looks super familiar. I think it's because he's in Airplane 2, and I've seen that a bunch. But uh, he plays the the other brother. and He plays the victim. Um, Like... When, when stuff goes wrong, it's with Robbie, you know, like, like yeah. Robbie has the tree and the clown to contend with. Like the, the, <laughs> the clown by the, far is the, the freakiest yeah, part. The big memorable like, moments in the, the movie, Robbie's, Robbie's getting yeah. it, you know? So, yeah. So, I mean, I don't know where to begin. We, we've got. Our, our Freeling family, they, they're in a house and they've been there for months, right? Or years. Because I think Carol Ann was born Carol in the Ann house. Carol was conceived yeah. in the house. Yeah. So they've been there for years and, you know, they this this uh, housing complex has kind of grown up around them and the dad works for the real estate company selling these houses in this complex. And uh, so then like weird stuff starts happening in the house and the family is slowly drawn into this this haunting situation and again it's very fun at first but then it escalates and it ceases to be fun uh and it becomes life-threatening 
and the uh the the youngest daughter who's maybe I don't know what do you think four five years old in this little sure. little enough that when she's walking down the stairs I'm like oh she should hold the railing uh, uh disappears and it eventually comes to light through the participation of these uh psychic investigators and then an actual psychic comes into the house uh that the the youngest daughter has been more or less abducted into some otherworldly space by these spirits uh, who are attracted to her life force. And and because she's so strong and bright life-wise, they're unwilling to like cross over into the light to the other side. Uh, then it comes to light that there's this other entity at play in there with her, uh, kind of manipulating the whole situation in, in more or less a play to like get those souls you know, keep those souls mm-hmm. out of the light so it, it can have them. And it's using her as a tool. Um, and then, you know, eventually. Uh, and most of that is explained to us through probably the, maybe the most or the second most iconic performance uh, is Zelda Rubenstein as Tangina. Yeah. Tangina. I don't know. I don't know if they ever say her Tegina. name. That Do they ever say her name in the movie? Like, I don't think so. I don't remember. He- I, you would think I would have heard. Oh yeah, to to Gina, which is hilarious. Um, but to Gina, to Gina, to Ginga, but she is this short woman with the very high pitched voice, and um, again, knowing this line was coming up, this house is clean, is uh, what. Jim Carrey does that in another movie, and I can't remember which one. Where he's this house is clean. Uh, but let me say this about her. Is she full of it? Well, there's questions about whether she's full of it or not, or whether she's misinformed, or whether she's just wrong. Um, I, yeah. I think. I mean, because she's right about a lot. I think she thinks the right? house is clean. I think that at that well, point, she feels like she has shepherded the spirits uh, into the light and recovered Carol Ann. When she says that line, she feels like the job is done. And everybody else feels like the job is done, too. The haunting goes quiet. Clearly, because they do the stupidest thing I've ever seen in cinema. Oh, it's so bad. You know the whole adage that white people get a bad... This is going to sound funny, but hang with me, folks. White people get a bad rap in um, horror movies because they go upstairs when they should go out the front door. Don't go in there, and we always go in there. And this is the quintessential... Point. This has got to be the genesis of this. It's almost the because ultimate after, act of stupid white people. In movies. After they get Carol Ann back, the house is clean, and Mr. Craig T. Nelson goes to work, and the family is going to spend the night in the house. They put the kids to bed the in st- the room. The mom closes the door, because they always close the door. And leaves them alone. It takes, it a, takes long a long bath. bath. And, and just leaves the kids in the room just... like like none of that ever happened. Um, I do, though, think that that is all it's all to set up the big final sequence, which is spectacular. Like, I, I think so yes. much of that final sequence works, you know, like the kids are getting sucked into the gaping I mob. Hell they would have established the door. like there's a football game in town and there's no hotels. Like establish some reason why they're still there. Yeah, because why the dad says I'll be home late, and then we're going to go to a hotel tonight. But then they just proceed as though he's not coming home at all, and she puts the kids in their pajamas and yeah. puts them to bed and takes the bath. Um, but that that sequence when she's on the bed and then uh, she starts getting assaulted and then like flips and flops up the wall onto the ceiling. Very awesome. reminiscent of Nightmare on Elm Street. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but there's that sequence. So th- which came first? This? This came, is he 82, right? This I came mean, so. first. Yeah, I think this came first. And that one is obviously like way more violent um, because, you know, Freddy's doing this. Yeah, 84 for Slashy, Elm slashy. Yeah, but, but they do, my imagining, what I'm thinking is happening, and maybe I saw this on some other thing. That the set itself is turning and the camera is turning with it. So she, the gravity is changing, but it works so effectively and is so awesome. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. And even, even the scenes where she's just in the bed and like her shirt keeps flipping up and she's like pulling it down and kind of like, like flipping yeah. around. 
Um, and then the scene where she goes into the room and the kids are getting sucked and they're like hanging on to the beds and she's like kind of in the doorway and she's trying to like put her leg up to leverage herself so she can like get yeah. the kids and it all just looks so real. Like you believe that there's something sucking them in. And I know a lot of that is just like mime from her, you know, <laughs> like, like she's just kind of yeah. doing that. Uh, or maybe they were hanging her from something, you know, and the whole set was sideways again. But uh, regardless of how they did it, it's it's really, really spectacular. The last 10 minutes of the movie are are really good, um, including the, the house shriveling up and getting sucked into wherever it gets sucked into, you know? Yeah, the movie kind of tips its hand when the boss takes their best salesman, who's dad, Craig T. Nelson, and says, you know, we're expanding up here where there's already a cemetery. He's like, don't worry, we'll move the cemetery just up the road. It'll actually be closer. No big deal. And they're like, oh, okay. Well, turns out, yeah, they moved the headstones but left the bodies. And that's a, a bit of exposition that comes out of Craig Nelson when he's shaking the his boss, telling them that he did this. Um, and, and there's just so many sequences that, are so good with the skeletons in this last bit. But to me, what made this movie for me and brought it home, I I loved the rescue sequence when she goes in. And even like, I, the, I like the, the fact that they acknowledge how much of an expert that Z, the Zelda's character isn't. Yeah. Um, where she's like, um, okay, I'm going in. And then mom says, no, I'm going to go in. She goes, you've never done this before. Never have you. Okay, you go. <laughs> like, I'd love that. <laughs> yeah, that, that whole bit with the rope. I've always loved it. I've always loved how they throw the balls into the closet and they come out the, the living room ceiling and, and then they throw the rope in and the rope is just coming out of nowhere, just kind of like hanging from the ceiling because there's this weird And it's portal. got like ectoplasm yeah, on it. Yeah, and then they come out and they're yeah. all covered in goop and so on. Um, and, you know, I had vague memories of actually seeing them in there and then I realized that that's Poltergeist 2. Uh, where... Right, because I have memories of now, Zelda is in Poltergeist 2, right? She is, yes. Right? Zelda Rubenstein, because I have, I want to say I've seen it and I, I have memories of like someone being in a wall. I, maybe that's, I three. think I saw Poltergeist two at the theater before I ever saw Poltergeist one. Now that I'm thinking about it, I think that I saw the sequel before I saw the original. Uh, I do remember like the preacher standing at the door saying, let me in. Why don't you just let me in? How about you let me in? And, and, uh, that that haunted me. Actually. I didn't realize that Heather Work lived long enough to do these sequels. Yeah, she lived uh, to do the third one. She passed away, I think, during the filming of the third one. Um, the older sister was murdered five months after the first one came out, so that's the only one that she's in. But yeah, so it's. Uh, I guess we'll segue into the the curse, quote unquote, of. Uh, poltergeist where several of the cast members have died. Most notably, Heather O'Rourke, who played Carol Ann, died at a very young age due to some mixed diagnosis of some sort of rare illness. Um, and I think that's the one that most people turn to and think of, at least for me, because it's the most tragic to me. Um, because oh, yeah, she was, she was so just young. a little kid. She right. was like 12, I think, when she passed away. And, and, you know, obviously cute and beloved by everyone, you know, everybody that saw this movie just fell in love with that kid. You know, they sold that second and third movie on the strength of her. Mm -hmm. um, she was the only re returning character in the third one. Uh, no, um, Zelda's in that one. Oh, is she in the third one also? Well, she pops up right, on cool. IMDb. Maybe it's just like a callback, but anyway, I don't know if I've ever seen it, to be honest. Yeah, I think that's the one I've seen, but I don't know. I've seen one of the other ones. Uh, but then Dominique Dunn, who plays Dana Feld Freeling, uh, as you said, is murdered by uh, an ex, I think. Um, her, her boyfriend, yeah, angry, angry ex-boyfriend guy. And then there were a couple others which were less surprising. There's one guy who died, but he had a pre-existing condition before going into the film. Um, but there's always this curse around. I don't personally buy any curse, but uh, oh, it's like the Superman curse, you know? Like it's it's just. Yeah, it's just a bunch of tragic coincidences. Yeah. Um, a lot of people like really take it far 
and say that it's because they used real skeletons in the skeleton scene. And that's why, you know, it's big curse. Blah. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm of the opinion that that is nonsense. That does seem and a bit, just, uh, a bit ridiculous in a movie where you're warning people not to build houses on property that has body, like an old burial ground. And then to go and get, Use three skeletons. Seems and dress a bit, them up and put them in the mud. <laughs> a bit much to me. Like even without it does. I didn't realize that they did that, but that just seems. I don't know. Sacrilege. <laughs> like yeah, loose, like unless, uncool. Now, if I was like a Jaws fan, you know, and that's you know, it's, hey, if I die, I want Spielberg to use my skeleton. Then you know that's fine, but. Uh, that's weird. Yeah, they, I don't they, know. They went to the science lab and just pulled a bunch of skeletons and yeah. put them in old timey clothes like, and threw them down in the mud. Like who signed their family up for that? I don't. Uh, where do they get the skeletons that hang out in college labs? You know, like well, those are donated by. You, I don't know if they you get the organ donor necessarily covers that, but uh, people donate can, their bodies to science all the time. Yeah, I know that that is true. That is true. But I don't um, think any, anybody's like, I'm donating my my body to cinema. I want to be a skeleton. to Spielberg. In a movie. Spielberg specifically. It's the only way I'm going to be body. But I think if they had that, people would definitely do it. Like if there was- Oh, I think so too, for sure. If there was a place in California, in LA, it's like, come in, sign up when you die. Uh, don't, you know, it, you know, it'd be a great way to cover your funeral costs. Just give us your body. <laughs> I just think it is a great idea, and we should start the business. No guarantee on the way we're using you. You know, like you could end up going into a meat grinder. You just don't know. It could be in the Jeffrey Dahmer movie. Who knows? But uh, (laughs) your head is going to be in the fridge. (laughs) Yeah, your head will be in the fridge, and your body will be in his bedroom. Just go with it. You're not going to be awake. Oh, dude, that's a good good idea. We're going to do that as a business. No, oh yeah, that's a hundred percent. They'll let us do that. That's <sighs> totally legal and not problematic at all. They'll, they'll totally let us do that. Yeah. So I did thoroughly enjoy Poltergeist. Uh, I was surprised how much I did. Like in the first half, I was like, okay, this is fine. But then, like when Joe Beth Williams comes into her own as Diane Freeling, I the movie picks up for me when they save the daughter. I loved it when. You know, the final sequence. Oh, we got to get to my favorite line here. One of my favorite lines is Dominique Dunn is the oldest teenage daughter in the Freeling family. And the night after the poltergeist is cleansed, right before we get to the final sequence, they she's going to go stay at a friend's house or something like that. And they said, well, we'll we're going to go stay at the hotel up the road. Which one? I don't remember what it's called. Let's just say Holiday Inn. Oh, yeah. I remember that place. And her parents were like, what? Oh, nothing. And I just thought that was such a good little piece of character. Like, you know, she's doing things her parents aren't aware of after hours. And I just thought that was, I liked that a lot. I thought that was well done. Yeah, that was cool. All right. I got, I got some questions. Oh, good. I mean, good. Going to get in, going to get into the nitty gritty. <laughs> so t- t- just to kick it off. Do you have personally any ghost stories? Have you ever experienced anything that you consider to be supernatural? The closest I would say is my great grandmother's house in Ohio. Yes, I have roots in Ohio. Um, they always said that, oh, but it was an old house and it creaked, but they always, there was talk of it. I never experienced anything supernatural there. Certainly not with ghosts, you know, um, the nothing tangible or anything like that. I mean, like I always say when I'm grilling, I'm spending time with my dad, which, you know, that's what he did when he was alive, grilled a lot. So when I grill, I'm spending time with my dad, but nothing, nothing particularly outside of that, that I can really, oh shit, ghosts. <laughs> How about you? Yeah, one. One one very not scary yet unexplainable thing. Um, and I'll I'll tell the short version of the story. I was on a ghost tour in New Orleans 
and they take you around to all these different buildings. They kind of tell you the history of the building, and then they tell you about the haunting almost as an afterthought, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, this lady had uh, who was running it claimed to be a psychic, and she said she had done work for this particular hotel, and she took us into the ballroom, and she explained the history of the place. It had been an orphanage, and a bunch of kids died of yellow fever, and then it had been a nunnery, and a bunch of those people died in a fire, and then, you know, all sorts of stuff had happened there. So while she's talking... Behind her, like over her shoulder, there's like this, uh, it's, it's in ballroom. So there are like candelabras on the wall, mm-hmm. right? Like little candlesticks sticking out of the wall and they've got crystals on them, right? So while she's talking, one of the little crystals on the thing just starts going back and forth, just ticking back and forth. Mm-hmm. And somebody in the audience or audience, this is like 15 people just kind of hanging out and listening to her spiel, pointed it out and she turned around and she was like, oh yeah, well, I mean, the place is haunted. And she just kept going like it was nothing, right? So when she got done, my buddy and I, who was there with me, went over to it. And he's a very analytic. He's a lawyer. He's a very analytic guy. And he and I are looking at it. And we're kind of like like feeling for wires, feeling for air, you know. And it's nothing. It's just a crystal hanging from a hook on a thing. You know, it's got a little loop sticking out of it. Mm -hmm. and And it's just tick, 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 tick. So we actually took it off of there. And then in the next one down, that one started going tick, 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 tick. And we were like, all right, that's it. Like, I got nothing. I got, I got nothing. This isn't scary. There's nothing creepy going on, but there's no way that I can explain this. Yeah. You know, like the lady had already left. People were like going to the bathroom. Well, no one was paying grabbing attention. Grabbing things in some property that's not yours, which I'm questioning right now is what are you doing? I don't know. Yeah. So, I mean, that that to me was the one time where I could like point my finger at it and say, I can't explain that. Like, yeah. that's that, you know. Uh, but for the most part, no. You yeah. know, like I live in a house uh, where many, many people died. I'll tell you about it sometime off the air. But uh, we we bought this house specifically because it was cheap because of the history of the house. And uh, I I feel like if any house would be haunted, it would be my house. Mm-hmm. And we've been here for 12 years in zilch. Right. You know, now I've probably, I've probably jinxed it. You know? Here we go. <laughs> I sit here in the house saying that, <laughs> and I set it off. But yeah, I don't know. Last episode so, of Spielberg, because having... <laughs> we're going to get poltergeisted. <laughs> Eric died of a mysterious heart attack that <laughs> night. Um, Do you think that this movie deserved a PG rating? If you if you had seen this if in eighty two, no like say you were PG-13 this age, PG thirteen existing, which there isn't at this point, because really the only part that really pushes the line is when the guy's ripping his own face apart. It's pretty yeah. brief. I mean, it's a firm PG thirteen if it exists, right? It's right where it needs to be. But without PG thirteen, there's yeah, I'm fine with it. If we're doing PG or R. I think I don't think it's bad enough to be an R rating. I guess I'm, and I'm so glad they introduced PG thirteen. It makes so much more sense. It does make more sense. I think had I taken my kids to see this movie, you know, and they were little, I think I'd be a little pissed. I'm wondering, you know, like when when and you may remember more than me because as long as I can remember, there's always been PG thirteen. That maybe PG had a different feeling around it so now i think the thing is is that nowadays pg feels like it's safe for everyone right if you're going to a pg movie you're fine like you're never going to see anything weird or crazy whereas in those days it would be maybe g you took your kids and then if it was pg parental guidance suggested you would just say it was almost more binary. It was on or off. It was like, this is totally safe. You're good to bring your kids. PG, do some research, you know? And then R is like, yeah, definitely not. Yeah. I, I, th- I yeah, wonder I, if growing up in, the, in that time, you see PG, you go, nope, not for the kids. You know, you never know what you're going to get. It's a grab bag. Uh, yeah, I do remember when I was a kid, my parents going to see PG movies first before taking me to them because they couldn't quite be sure if they were appropriate. Like they went to see Star Wars first before yeah. they took me to see Star Wars because they, they weren't 100% sure that it wasn't going to, you know, burn my brain out. 
Um, so yeah, there is a little bit of that and, and things snuck into PG movies that you wouldn't see now, you know, you'd get an occasional F bomb in a PG movie. You would get, uh, 16 candles has that boob shot. Well, I think an airplane airplane has a one gratuitous <laughs> boob shot right. and then it's gone and it's right. PG. One of and my favorite PG. films of all time. Um, yeah, that, that wouldn't fly these days. That would be a 13. You're immediately into 13 territory, which I'm glad. I think I, I it's one of the times where, you know. It's not really censorship. It's just a good way to say this is what you're going to expect. And I think 13 is the right age for it. Like, well done, people of the past. All right. Let's let's get into the, like the themes of the movie real quick. And and I'll I'll kick that off by asking you, do you think the ending of this movie is a happy ending? as happy as you'd hope for they survived right it's kind of like is the the ending of jurassic park happy uh hammond lost his business we've had several people killed and um you know they're just running away right the handful of survivors so that's not a happy ending if you think about it like man we were around and my lawyer just said well, i'm okay with that but then you have other people that died and it was just a, kind of a tragedy this Everybody survives, and the house gets sucked into a black hole. Yeah. You know, that's not bad. They got out of it pretty pretty well intact. Now, the problem's going to be when they have to do an insurance claim on the house that they purchased. What happened? Well, a black hole came and sucked it up, and it's gone. They're out of gas there. I think they're in a bad situation, like, life-wise. Right. Like, and that's, that's, that's kind of what I'm trying to get at like i feel like in a way this movie is kind of about like american capitalism in the 1980s and uh you know how these people were caught up in this situation where they had this really nice house and you know like even after it was haunted and they're moving away there's this remorse like we worked so hard for this joe beth williams says you know we worked really yeah. hard for this and and in the way that the movie is structured, the only way for them to like get away from the haunting is to lose all of their possessions. Like they lose their house. The dad loses the job. Uh, you know, like they, uh, everything that was in the house goes with the house and it's gone. And so the only way that they can survive is to kind of detach themselves from that materialistic, uh, lifestyle that they lead. Um, which I thought, you know, was interesting, yeah. you know, because they did live this very comfortable suburban life. You know, the dad, as much as he was kind of a schlub, was successful at his job. I mean, you know, being a salesman, he can get a job pretty much wherever he wants as in sales. Yeah. The mom, you know, kind of enjoyed her life as a, as a house mom, you know, and, and uh, was pretty happy there living their comfortable lifestyle. And so... uh do you, do you think that living this kind of materialistic suburban lifestyle makes them less considerate of like spiritual issues? No, no, I. That's a circumstance I don't think expect really changes spirituality. Maybe I don't know. I, I just. I have no response to that. <laughs> I was thinking in terms of of Tweety and what happens with Tweety. That's that's why I wrote that question down. Like, like Tweety, who's is, Tweety? Tweety's the bird that dies at the beginning. Oh, okay. And the the way that they treat Tweety uh, is foreshadowing everything else that comes yes. because Tweety dies, and they very nonchalantly take Tweety and put her in well, a she's cigar get box flushed and, first. Yeah, she was gonna, yeah, she was initially just Lane. gonna get flushed. Right. Not a lot of care taken there, but then she gets caught. And so they take her and they bury her. Um and Carol Ann, you know, who is cute, like a little kid during the thing, you know, she gives her, you know, a little blanket and the flower and so on. But then immediately afterwards says, Can I have a goldfish? And then not a day later, here come the bulldozers and they bulldoze in to build the pool, and they're in the dirt that they just yeah. bulldozed is Tweety's cigar box, right? It, which is it, like a, a microcosm for exactly what happens 
later on in the film. Right. You know, like we buried this thing here. Now we're going to bulldoze it up so we can have, you know, this opulent swimming pool, you know, and, and it just kind of the way that they dismiss that, you know, the, the dad isn't even paying attention to what's going on. You know, he's in there with his buddies watching the game and having the remote yep. control battle. That's and, awesome and too. I love that so much. <laughs> the neighbor, and they're changing each other's TVs because their remotes are on the same frequency. Just awesome. Do you think, okay, let me, why do you think the disturbances just are happening now? I have no like, idea. Well, okay, so here would be my theory. I was about to say I have no idea, but this is my theory is that Carol Ann is of an age where um, she can hear them, right? And maybe that the uh, the the people who are sort of stuck in this purgatory uh, of the house that are buried there are able to have her hear them. So Caroline can hear them and they're like, Oh, she can hear us. Maybe she can help. And I don't think that maybe, I don't think necessarily the evil part of the house took her there, that that might've been yeah. those spirits saying, Hey, she can help us. There's something about the light in this child. She can help us. And that's what happens, right? She helps. And that's what pisses off the beast. Right. So up, Which wants to just keep them there. Right. Yeah. Up until Carol Ann sort of has this awakening where she can hear the spirits, the, the house is fine. It's only when she starts hearing and responding that things start getting weird. Right. Do you think the beast refers to the devil? Like, are we are we in exorcism terms here? Is this is this Satan or is this a demon or is it just some unknown force that is evil? I mean, do you think there's like a, a Christianity aspect to this or do you think it's just another unknown supernatural entity? Yeah, I put it more so like the, the synopsis says demonic ghost, but there is they don't like you said, they don't bring the Bible into it. There's no holy water. This isn't the exorcist. This um, they call it the beast. But and of course, the beast is in the Bible, the mark of the beast, the beast being the enemy, the devil. But here, but here I think of it more as a really bad person got stuck there and that it's another bad person who's like controlling them, you know, or something like that as but when you see there is a, there is an actual beast ghost that comes out and then there's some other ghosts that come that are angelic and light, you know, so I think it's. I don't think it specifically has any Christian doctrine behind it. It's just this otherworldly ghost sort of place. And I think that yeah, the beast is just a, about possibly another bad guy. The, the like, I don't even know what to call it, the dog-like thing that shows out up guarding the kid's uh, bedroom and won't let Joe Beth Williams in at the end. Uh, it's only one manifestation. Like earlier, there's the time when the dad tries to go in the room and the giant face mm-hmm. comes out. Um, so, I mean, we well, don't even know if, if the, that manifestation clown, is like what it really looks like. It takes like. control of a yeah. tree. So it could be any number of things. Yeah. So like the clown in the tree really struck me this time because I never, never realized before that they were ghost strategy. Like this is the first time where like, like, Earlier watching this film, I saw those things and I was like, oh, this is real messed up what those ghosts are doing. But this is the first time watching the film that I was like, oh, no, they're tormenting Robbie to pull the rest of the family away so they can get to Carol Ann. Mm-hmm. Like the whole thing is is a strategic, you know, distraction uh, to, to pull everybody outside, you know, and leave this kid here by herself so they can get her. And that's exactly what they do again with the ghost. You know, um, it, it's all about like pulling the kid away so they can get Carol Ann back into the closet, which I don't know. It just, it never occurred to me before, like just watching it on a surface level. It just was a series of events that were super messed up, you know? And so I didn't really get that there was actual thinking on the part of the ghosts behind, you know, what some of the stuff was, you know? Yeah, I I agree. And I, I, I like all the things you're pulling out of this film because me, my brain doesn't usually go there. Sometimes it will, will find deeper meaning, but most of the time it's like, hey, good, flashing lights, pretty, you know. I'm an idiot is what I'm trying to say. 
Um, so we kind of talked about her pronouncing the house clean. Um, <laughs> and, 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 and my feeling was it's because she thought that the ghost went into the light. You know, there's a lot of don't Which go into I the think light. they do did, go right? into the light. Yeah, all take them over to the light. I, don't go into the light. No, wait, do totally no, but don't. But you should. Right. But don't torment the kid. Right. Yeah. So it, it, basically, to me, the whole thing is she's just trying to lead these other spirits into the light. So my feeling was that she actually succeeded in getting the other spirits into the light. So at the end of the movie, for the final confrontation, it's just the beast left. Yes. Right. Is that Agreed. is that your take as well? Because everything so goes why, way more violent. It's much less. Yeah, exactly. Playful, and it's it's much higher stakes. You know, there's no little things happening. It's just big boom, boom, booms. Why do you think the beast continues to come after the family? He's mad. After because it's just a revenge just thing. Because they got rid of his. He had. I I think the beast controls and has his own little minions and kingdom. And then when all the people he controls are set free, then he's like going to stick it to him at that point because everything he does is much more violent, even to the point where it's like he's sending her outside and I'm going to take your children. Like he's not trying to take her. I'm going to take your children now. So it feels like a direct reciprocation of what they did to him. Yeah. No, I feel like that makes sense. And at that point, he might not even have any use for the children. You know, like what's appearing in that closet is very different from what was in the closet before. Right. It could just be I'm going to take these children and I'm going to pull them down to hell or I'm going to kill them or I'm going to, you know, like it's no longer fun and games with these little spirits. So, you why, know, like why does he destroy the house in, at the end? Or is he is that is that voluntary? On his part, is that him saying, okay, I couldn't get your children, I'm taking your house, or is it him dying, the beast? I don't see any reason why the beast would die. Uh, I mean, they escaped, so it's mad. Um, It could just be that the house was so intrinsically tied to the beast that when the beast retreats back to whatever realm uh, that it came from, the house goes with it. You know, like at the end when the house disappears, there's that single point of light there. And it's almost as though the house has been sucked th- down through this portal into that point of light like it was going down a funnel, you know. And uh, so maybe, you know, by the end of the film, the house is the beast and the beast is the house. Yeah. And when when it goes, it goes, you know. Um, yeah, it'd be interesting to uh, see how that house materialized on the other side of that portal. <laughs> right. That's what I'm curious about. Uh, so, I mean, as in the upside down, I don't know. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Um, so there's just some things that are a little bit like, okay, you have to maybe interpret that. But largely, I think that the story is kind of there and makes sense. And the things that are vague are meant to be vague. Yeah, and I think it's a lot less vague than what we were discussing with Close Encounters. You know, like when we were talking about the the government people with Close Encounters, and it's kind of like, how are they jumping to all these conclusions? Like, what is going on? How did they know this was going to happen? Like, I think that this is, uh, like, a lot lighter touch as far as leaving blanks blank. Right. You know? I mean, the, the blanks that are still blank at the end of this movie are kind of acceptable. It, there's more of a feeling of, like wonder and mystery to it as opposed to what the hell was that you know um so i'm kind of more satisfied with it in that way yeah so i i enjoyed it um where would i put this i mean so i would still say jaws is the best i like it better than raiders so it might be the second best movie we watched what all did we watch i can't even remember yeah no i'm with you so far like i think i think jaws and then this and Raiders would kind of be like neck and neck for me. Uh, Raiders was a more formative film for me. So yeah. I would probably give that one, give that one the edge over this, but it's right up there. Certainly this is better than 1941, better than Sugarland Express. And then of course the TV movies and duel. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, yeah. this is, this is definitely on the, on the positive side of the meter. Yeah. You know, if, if indeed he did direct them. it, which I'm of. So did, uh, let's, let's end on this. Do you think he directed this movie? 
I think he probably directed about three quarters of this movie. I think he definitely edited it. Um, I like, yeah, I think like there, there are other movies, you know, like the other movies that we're not going to do that are associated with Spielberg, like back to the future and oh, gremlin. You say and we're so, not like, doing back to the future. Just wait. Oh, if you want to put it in, Dude. I am down. Gremlins too. Like, if we want to put those in as bonus episodes, I'm a hundred percent there. Back to the Future for it. is my jam. So, oh, me too. It's like top top five movies of all time. Yeah. If it, uh, if I had to pick the movie, I that consider I've seen one the most film. in my life. Yeah, it's right up there with Jaws. You know, it's like near perfect. Yeah, but those movies, like that's a Zemeckis movie. Yeah, yeah, it has some Spielberg in it. But it feels like a Zemeckis it, yeah, movie. Exactly. You know, it, and, and uh, Gremlins doesn't necessarily feel exactly like a Spielberg movie either. This feels like a Spielberg movie. Absolutely. You know, and, and that's that's kind of the tipping point for and me. It, it doesn't like, that's, that's the differentiation. feel like a Toby Hooper movie. God, no. Right. It certainly doesn't. Like, when you think of his other movies, like, like Texas, Texas Chainsaw, Chainsaw Massacre, the only one I really know. Amityville Horror, uh, Life Force, which is the one with the naked lady walking around and Jean-Luc Picard Amityville is in Amityville would be an interesting one because it's kind of of this ilk, but yeah. different. Um, well, I've never seen it, but. Oh, not Amityville. Is it not Amityville? Um, oh, God. What am I thinking of? Is it Salem's Lot? You got to IMDb this for me now, man. All right, I'm You're going right Toby. There with the keyboard. <laughs> Toby Hooper, IMDb it. Which one am I thinking of? I'm, I'm doing Not it. Not Amityville, I don't Oh, think. Powers Booth is in one of these. I love Powers Booth. Um, uh, Texas Chainsaw, Poltergeist, Spontaneous Combustion. Oh. I don't even know what that is. I, I don't either. Um, what year would it have been? Life Force, Invaders yeah. of Mars, Massacre 2. Life Life for it. Yeah. Okay. So we got enough of a we got enough of a pool of films here. This guy makes hardcore horror films yeah. for the most part. Like like Texas Chainsaw Massacre is no joke. So clearly there was some push and pull between these two guys to lighten it up. Yeah. The you only know. thing I, I could I, point I, at would be the face tearing the as face. being the only thing that feels like a Toby Hooper part. Exactly. And the rest of it feels like Spielbergian. And and so, you know, at at the most, Toby Hooper was a gun for hire on this, you know, but definitely there to fulfill Spielberg's vision, you know, and and but when it comes right down to it, yeah, I think Spielberg had a very strong directorial hand in yeah, this. Yeah, I think, I, like you said, it's almost completely his to me. Yeah, uh, I just it's too close, and it's and that, the other part is how far away. From it being a Toby Hooper film, it is exactly, and that, yeah, and no, no slight against Toby Hooper. Like those, some of those are some like pretty good films. This just yeah, doesn't it just feel doesn't like feel them. like it's like yeah. it's uh, like Shyamalan, right? I mean, he has a distinct feel to his films, and you know, with the exception of there are exceptions where his just kind of f- ignoring how bad they are don't necessarily feel like they have his particular touch to it, but he has a uh, feel so. Totally. Well, um, that's a bonus. <laughs> you didn't have to pay for it because you wouldn't. Why would you? <laughs> um, but next week we are back on Spielberg's certainly definitely directed films. And it's it's one of the big I mean, if we had top three movies that are on the list of Spielberg's that we have to do. This is on that short three list. Right. To me, it's. Yeah, for sure. Jaws, for sure. This, like this. This is one of the ones that became the biggest grossing movie of all time, right? Like, like Jaws did, this did, Jurassic Park did. Oh, it's JP, not that would be the third. That would for, be the Trinity for, for me. Steven Spielberg to like have the greatest, you know, grossing movie of all time. This one was yeah. for a little while. So we're gonna watch so uh, E. T. The Extraterrestrial. Uh, I don't know if anyone's ever heard of it. Spielberg, of course. Uh, Henry Thomas. Uh, go going. There's a small. I don't want to say small. There's a Hitchcock connection here because Henry Thomas, who plays Elliot, also plays young Norman Bates in Psycho 4. Really? Yes. I had no idea. That's awesome. Yeah. And then, of course, he goes on to be in um, House on Haunted Hill, which is on Netflix, which is amazing. And you should watch it if you like horror. Uh so we'll have to have some Henry Thomas talk next week oh, because sure. that dude's had a wild career. I'll man. definitely I'll rewatch Cycle Four. I love it. Um 
it's not for everyone though. And then of course Drew Barrymore's iconic breakout performance. Um, yeah, we're in for a treat next week. I I hope I I know I've seen ET all the way through, but it's been so long. It might be thirty years since I've seen this movie. Oh my gosh! I think I watched it a year ago. Yeah, we showed it to my younger kids like a year ago, so it's pretty fresh in my mind. But of course, I'm going to watch it right. again. Right. So. Well, anyway, so that's a that's it for this uh, extra episode. And like it sounds like maybe we'll do some uh, we'll scatter in a little bit of Gremlins, maybe a little bit of Back to the Future, uh, a little bit of gravy, a little bit of spice, maybe Forrest Gump yeah. for no reason whatsoever. But um, just because I love Forrest Gump. Good. Everybody loves Forrest Gump, man. You gotta love it. It's one of my favorites. So good. Uh, anyway, so uh, if you want to check out more stuff from Eric, he's over at thegamingnexus.com. Um, what else do you got? What did you help me out? You got your- uh, so yeah, I got my my YouTube channel, the, the Gaming Nexus Show, which was I, I was on for a while. Seems to be taking a bit of a hiatus at the moment, but gamingnexus.com. Uh, my, my Twitter is at Eric with a C underscore Hotter, H-A-U-T-E-R. Um, and my YouTube channel is also just Eric Hotter. If you go into YouTube and type in my name, you will see my little video game videos that I make as a sad hobby. So, yeah. And over, and all that stuff's in the description. You can find me at Podcast by Jeff on Twitter. Check out, uh, the movie Draft House. If you want more movies and a little more anger, um, that's where you go. Uh, where me and Mark, we, it gets really nasty. This last episode was gross. Uh, but fortunately, we lost part of the recording, which was the grossest part. Uh, anyway, just, <laughs> of course, by the time this comes out, it'll be Ancient History. Uh, also, Budget Arcade, where we review free-to-play and uh, indie video games with our friend Scott. That's me, Mark, and Scott. Anyway, so we'll see you next week for E.T., and, uh, you know, the train keeps on rolling. It just gets better from here. No more 1941s, right? That's right. right? Well, always is right around the corner, so we'll see. All right. I, what is always? Do you even know? Oh, you'll see. Oh, you. I know. You've seen it, and you're already telling oh, me. Oh, of course. <sighs> we'll see how it plays. How I do you feel about AI real quick? Just real quick. Because this might be one. AI to me oh, is shit. how you feel about Hook is how I feel about AI. It's horrible. I'm interested in rewatching it. It is definitely dry. It is definitely slow. It is visually very interesting. Um, ball salad. I, so many words. It's horrible. It's ball salad. Yeah, just, That's great, dude. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to always. Of course, that comes after Last Crusade. Yeah, we got a few. We got a few good yeah. ones before it's, before we get to always. So is that Belushi. Yeah. All right. Life us again. Okay. All right. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. We're out of here. Bye. Bye. Bye.